Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. On October 26, 2018, the Logan Social Enterprise Forum was held, bringing together key stakeholders to share ideas and experience, network and discuss the future of social enterprise in Queensland and more broadly in Australia. Impact Boom hosted a panel on igniting social enterprise and entrepreneurship in the regional communities of Queensland with the aim of advancing the conversation forward. We had a fantastic panel on the day and we started by watching a video, which you'll find a link to in the article, which provided an analogy to outline the difference between rural and urban approaches to entrepreneurship. So I'll introduce the panelists from the day and then we'll cross over to a live recording from the day. Now Celeste Alcaraz is an educator in Griffith University's UNIS Social Innovation Program Manager and the Redlands and Logan Regional Innovation Coordinator. She has over 10 years experience in higher education, teaching business and marketing strategy. Celeste is passionate about improving youth employability pathways and enabling innovative approaches within academia, industry and the community. Her publications and research interests relate to the not-for-profit sector and graduate employability. And in her roles for the university and council, she establishes networks between industry, government, small and medium enterprises, the not-for-profit and education to nurture the rise of economic and social capabilities in the regional southeast Queensland. Anna Gunther is the chief bubble blower of Pledge Me. She's the co-founder of this platform, which is New Zealand's first crowdfunding platform, which has also been operational in Australia for the last year or so. And since launching Pledge Me five years ago, over 1,200 creative, community and entrepreneurial campaigns have raised over $30 million through the platform. Anna has also worked for the New Zealand government, MIT and Harvard, and completed her master's in entrepreneurship with a focus on crowdfunding. Matt Farlett is helping to shape regional and rural Australia through igniting entrepreneurship in young people and their communities. Matt started his first social enterprise in 1993 at the age of 23, working with at-risk young people in wilderness settings. His passion and drive for positive social outcomes saw him receive the prestigious Young Australian of the Year Award in 1996. Motivated by a desire to create prosperous, healthy, thriving communities, in 2016, as the co-founder and CEO of the Australian Centre for Rural Entrepreneurship, Matt led a $2.5 million community buyback of the old Beechworth Jail, a neglected Australian heritage icon famed for its connection to Ned Kelly and the Kelly Gang and located in Matt's hometown. And Sarai Tuga is Queensland Services Manager at Your Town. Sarai is a Logan local and has spent over 20 years working as a senior manager at Your Town, and she's been responsible for the development and delivery of innovative case management, alternative education, training, and employment responses and programs for young people. Sarai also manages Your Town's social enterprises in Queensland, which provides transitional employment for young people. 
Established in 1999, Your Town Enterprises deliver building refurbishment, landscaping, fencing, grounds maintenance and cleaning services on behalf of local and state government agencies, private contracts and community organisations including community housing providers. And my name is Tom Allen. I was the chair of the panel on the day and I'm absolutely passionate about bringing you the latest insights and interviews to help you create positive social impact and help social entrepreneurs and their regions to thrive. So let's cross over to the live recording from the day. So red and grey squirrels. What's that have to do with Logan? And as, as Australians, I think it might be hard for us to, to relate to that analogy about squirrels. But I think there's some, some interesting comparisons there, right? What I'd like to ask the panel to start with is, would you guys agree that Donald's comparison could be an accurate way to describe the difference between urban and rural approaches to entrepreneurship, or perhaps even as an analogy to describe the tech startup sort of unicorn culture that we see thriving in Australia, and the difference between that and social entrepreneurship. Who'd like to start? <laughs> yeah, I think it's about the difference between value extraction and value creation. So people in rural communities need interdependency uh, in how they kind of view themselves. So if you are a rural community and have heaps of jobs, um, but you're a really crap place to live, people will fly and fly out of your community for those jobs. Equally, if you have an amazing community but no jobs, people hang on and hang on and hang on to which point they have to move. And so we intuitively know in rural communities that the thing that binds us is a combination of our economic and our social health and it's our cultural capital that is the glue that binds us. And that's why we love rural communities. Now, that's not a winner-take-all model. And yet, the way our global marketplace works is a winner-take-all model. And so what I see with a lot of the commercial uh, accelerators and, and incubators is that they're trying to unpick that one in 10 or one in 20 high-value talented ideas where the owners or the operators of the accelerator can extract that value to then sell on to somewhere else. But nothing's left behind. And, and the Scots call this a, 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 a leaky bucket economy. So you're not building a community of capacity for everyone to actually play a role around business development and community development and entrepreneurship. You're actually just trying to extract value. And, and that's where I kind of think there's a big difference between uh, how, we, how we view the world sometimes. So I struggled a little bit to hear the video, that's why I was doing like the full shake of the head. Um, but I think just to, just to come up on that is the, I think we talk too much in binaries. I think we talk too much about commercial or social or doing well or doing good. And we don't actually realize that those can be connected and it's not rural and um, urban. You know, we need to be thinking more about the intersections of our identities and how we can actually make it a win for everyone rather than thinking. Um, but they have to be these two separate identities or these two separate things. We have so many more parts of our identities than that. Um, so, 
and that would be my try not to make two buckets. How do we just fix the system? Is that too theoretical? Um, everything that Matt and um, had to say, I, I, um, I also struggled to hear the video. But um, I guess from a practical experience, um, having been involved in the social enterprise network from its um, uh, establishment, the, um, what's brought the people involved in that together has really been about you know, condensing conversations, creating this whole environment, this um, enabling environment to even start to have the conversations. I often reflect with Tony, um, we come from two of the largest organisations in Logan that service young people. It's interesting the lack of conversation between the two of us over the years and then in the last four years him and I have been able to um, build quite a bit of a momentum in terms of what we are going to do in, in this community, not only in the social enterprise space, but also in engaging young people and assisting others and, and creating the, um, the conversation, I guess. Uh, so I think that's the key component. Yeah, I agree as well. Uh, key component uh, and value creation is collaboration, and um, that's what's quite significant in this community is um, this many people who live in the region and work in the region who band together to create conversation for a collective approach um, to support the innovation ecosystem, uh, whether that be social or commercial. I guess my thing is though, I don't think it has to be commercial or social. Like I think at the end of the day, we need to start thinking that social enterprises can be and are commercial as well, but it's balancing both sides. It's not one or the other. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because you know, people say to us, well, why are you so fixated on uh, everything needing to be a social enterprise? And we go, well, we're actually not with the Australian Centre for Rural Entrepreneurship. And they go, oh, well, why has everything got social enterprise in it? And I say, well, because it's the, the single best vehicle that we've found that actually combines uh, people uh, developing the skills to be great citizens at the same time as being able to develop the skills to be entrepreneurial. Because we need both. You know, if you're going to have a commercial business in the town and create all these jobs for people, we also want you to know how to be a good citizen. And so both sides are really, really important. It just happens to be great people uh, for that kind of learning. Thanks very much. I'd like to, to come back to Sarai, perhaps, um, having worked extensively in this, this area and having spoken about the value of collaboration, particularly between yourself and Tony at YFS. And in trying to share some of the key lessons that you've learned beyond just that collaboration is a good thing, right? So how do you believe that the sector as a whole and then private and, and government groups can more effectively then collaborate and work together? I'll talk about two examples. Um, so, uh, having run these enterprises at your town since 1999, you know, there's, there's been a, um, I guess, a real responsibility in us to educate others in not only social enterprise but also the value that we bring to commercial operators and partnering. And um, recently, a great success story, Logan City Council, they put out a tender for a building trades panel and uh, individually yeah, the social enterprise in Logan um, have constantly bid for this work in their own right and this town. Um, and through some conversations, 
across you know, a number of social enterprises, we were able to agree that we could bid as a collaboration um, or as a consortium. Now, there's definitely experience within our sector in bidding as partnerships or consortiums, but not necessarily in the, in the space of um, sort of building or construction or that, those types of contracts. So um, we have a number of commercial partners who have provided us some advice in terms of what to, how to build those consortiums, how to work together, um, and in fact we're successful in, um, in that bit. Local City Council are obviously looking at um, social procurement policy and looking to engage more social enterprises, but I think the lessons that we've learned are that in the commercial world, understand that you know, there's certainly learnings there that we as social enterprises can benefit from, particularly in terms of scale. Um, our capacity as individual social enterprises often is quite small, uh, but what we've managed to do through this consortium is uh, not only bid for a large amount of work, but um, work with uh, large organisations, um, and I'm, for example, Lindley's um, we were recently approached by another consortium who were looking at the Crossroad Road project. So there are, you know, these um, organisations, companies out there that are prepared to work with us in scaling up. Um, and I think, you know, the importance is not seeing it as a them and us, but you know, how do we collectively um, create the opportunities to work together? Thanks, Roy. Um, while, we're, while we're talking about the local area, I think it probably be great to jump back to Celeste actually. And I suppose my curiosity is, is in asking where you see there are unique opportunities for the Logan and Redlands area. And what do we need to do to unleash the region's full potential? I think uh, in answering that question, Tom, is to come back and give the audience an insight to the Logan and Redlands region. Uh, Logan and Redlands is classed as one region and not many people know this by the state and federal government. Uh, this region consists of, uh, there are half a million people who reside in this region. There are 217 different cultures, predominantly from a collective background. 63 suburbs in Logan. Uh, Redlands has a vibrant city and is surrounded by the islands. The demographics are dynamic, so we have um, an ageing population in the Redlands and a mean age in Logan, um, about 32 and a half years. But what's really significant is the passion of the people in these areas in the region who are coming together and building collectives or collaborations to support um, the innovation ecosystem. And I think um, more of this to include government, higher education, industry, and the community is necessary for building uh, growth in social um, innovation and yeah, moving forward. So that's my comments. Thanks, Celeste. Anna, you've, you've worked extensively in New Zealand and in regional communities of the Activate in there as well. And I'd like to ask about where you have seen traditionally from, from your perspective and work with a lot of social enterprises, where are some of those key barriers that exist for social enterprises to start up? But beyond that, to potentially, if it's suitable, to scale up as well. 
So in New Zealand, we've been working for a very long time in the crowdfunding space. And for those of you that don't know what crowdfunding is, I imagine most of you do. But the idea is that you go to your crowd for funding. And it's a little bit harder in the regions because the crowds are smaller. It's just the way that populations work. But actually, that's not always a barrier. We've seen that as being a really great opportunity because often those communities are more connected, which comes back um, to some of the things that Matthew was saying. You know, they do really care about what's happening in their local community, and they want to be a part of it. Um, one great example of this for us last year was um, in Dunedin, down south in New Zealand. Um, Cadbury's decided to stop making chocolate there. And chocolate had been made in Dunedin for over 120 years. And some of the local councillors got pissed off. And they are like, what are we going to do to keep these jobs and keep the skill and keep these people? And they decided to crowdfund. So they decided to crowdfund through equity crowdfunding to raise enough money to buy a chocolate company. Um, they raised $2 million in 32 hours. And that's the legal maximum they were allowed to raise in New Zealand. And the reason they could do that was because they didn't let the crisis go to waste. They used every opportunity they could to get into the media. And they had this community that really cared about it. And I know it's not technically a social enterprise, but I think the focus of it, to keep jobs and to keep skills, and to make sure that the CEO was never paid more than five times more than the lowest paid worker in their organization, really means that the social focus was embedded throughout what they were doing. So I think we can look at the things that are harder in the regions, but I think we also have to look at the opportunities that they have and the strengths that they have. And I, I, I think that we can see that often um, when we look at people doing stuff slightly differently. Did that answer your question? Good. Thank you, Anna. So I think it's, it's really important that we, we talk about that place-based approach and acknowledge that, that all regions are unique. Logan is unique. Uh, to the Sunshine Coast, where many of us were yesterday, the, the Social Enterprise Forum up there, and, and recognising that every region has their their own unique um, capabilities and, and, and strengths and weaknesses as well. So, Matt, what does it mean for an enterprise to come from a place and be unique to that place, recognise it, you know, what makes it different, and what are the pros and cons of being unique to that place. I mean, you're very familiar with Beechworth and, and what that means for that region. How can that be utilised to, uh, to help that area thrive? So I'm assuming you're meaning unique by what our, what our unique assets are. Um, there's two opportunities we saw you know, with, in relation to the old Beechworth job. And, and that is that um, the Ned Kelly story um, have, it is an incredible story, no matter, no matter which way you look at it or what you think of Ned Kelly. But what of great interest to us was the fact that the story is probably more well-known now, you know, 140 years later, than, than it even was uh, 50 years ago because of the way our creatives, our, our greatest creatives in our in, in Australia, have keep retelling the story. You know, whether it's through art or um, songs or, or movies or books. And to us, the idea of how we identify ourselves as a kind of a, a young nation and all that kind of stuff 
and then our relationship to Indigenous people as well. We, we think that's a rich canvas to, to have a new, a new narrative. And we see the great opportunity that this place of punishment has been, uh, we're you know, repurposing um, as, as a place of freedom and creativity. And so we don't need to have the unique ideas we've realised because our community already has them. We just need to create the canvas. So we're unlocking people in our community that we didn't even know existed. You know, one, one just quick example is that we've been looking at how we activate a sort of arts and cultural and events component of our site in a really meaningful kind of special way. And a young couple in our community, you know, come from a you know, relatively famous uh, rock band called Architecture from Helsinki. I don't know if anyone's heard of them, but there's quite a few nods here. And you know, they're sound engineers, really connected into the music scene here and overseas. Um, and they already corral uh, some of the greatest bands you could imagine between Melbourne and Sydney driving to stop in Beechworth. So this guy says, oh, that's the easy bit. And we're going, oh, really, is it? <laughs> that is wonderful. Because the canvas is there. Um, and that's a wonderful kind of little little joint venture that we've kind of got uh, brewing at the moment. So, you know, these things are, it, it's about um, providing the opportunity. That's what I mean, that enabling environment. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. In, in being eager to get the questions uh, to the audience, the final question I'd like to ask all of us, I think it's really important that we perhaps come back to what was raised earlier about uh, social enterprise, business, uh, business operating for good, you know, this, this balance, balancing act that social enterprise doesn't have to be a handout activity, it's an enterprise, right? It's trading, trading business, business for good. So where do you see perhaps that social enterprise sector could better communicate the value of just operating in this way? Some people would say that the term should just be redundant, should just be business. Right. What comments do you have about how we can better communicate in a way that pulls a lot of people onto this journey and allows them to, to see the value of just doing business like that? So I think it's a matter, and, and there is this issue of people not understanding what um, social enterprise is and not understanding that it is the adoption of a traditional business, you know, the traditional business model is adopted. Um, I think if we can educate um, or simplify uh, what we're saying, um, that probably will have some resonance with the audiences and get the um, message across uh, a little better. Um, I've been really fortunate, I mentioned examples earlier about um, some of the larger corporates, and yes, you know, the impetus for them to engage with us is around corporate social responsibility. It's really interesting when you talk to people from those corporates um, or commercial enterprises. Um, it's not, not it's uh, it's quite easy to I mean, they they get it they really do um, particularly uh, those people who are probably a bit more operational at the level that I'm um, talking at. But um, I think. Um, Yes, agree with the need to raise the uh, awareness, definitely. Um, but it's also about, you know, 
what can we as um, social enterprises um, not only bring to the table, but um, where, yeah, where can we offer some value? Um, and not just in ticking the box around CSR, but um, uh, yeah, there's plenty of good examples out there where uh, we've got some really, really solid partnerships between social enterprises and I mean, I'm totally on board with the idea that in the future all enterprise should be social. I think that that's just the way we're moving. The system has to change. We can't stop hiding the negative externalities that some businesses have. And I think we should focus on the positive social environmental impacts that companies can have as well. Um, so I think it, part of it is uh, just, just trying to make that the norm. Like, how do we make things more transparent, um, easier to do, how do we make sure that, you know, we are making good decisions for our people and our planet in everything we do? Yeah, I have a schizophrenic relationship with this question. Um, because <laughs> yeah, that's, because um, when we, it's a real sweet spot for our, the Social Enterprise Schools Initiative is Grade 5. And we can, without doubt, always have a group of 30 10-year-olds understand the difference between what a traditional charity is and what a fully commercial business and what a social enterprise is within 30 minutes. They get it way more deeply and cleanly and clearly and obviously than any adults. But it is so important that the business model that is social enterprise has a level of understanding by our current people in influence so that the policies can be put in place today that actually creates the enabling environment for the next generation. So one of my superhero of social enterprise um, that I bang on about wherever I go is, is a, um, a social enterprise that exists in Ballarat, Victoria, and it's a living museum. It's a kind of historic place where you go and you get immersed as being in this kind of 1860s gold rush township. Now, that was a harebrained idea when it started in the early 70s. No one believed it would work forward to today, and that one social enterprise um, contributes 780 jobs to Ballarat and has a, an impact on the Victorian economy of $1 billion every four years. One of my other superheroes, a colleague of mine, Craig Marshall from the work group in um, Shepparton, Victoria, totally pivoted a traditional uh, jobs kind of, um, you know, support agency into a social enterprise and in the last 10 years has created a business that now um, has a $24 million turnover, of which they've just hit the $1 million mark per year that are not for profit, so this social enterprise is gifting into programs in our region that are changing multi-generational disadvantage. That is a not for profit bringing one million dollars into our region every single year off their trading and these are the unsung heroes of social enterprise because I don't know one corporate in our region that's going anywhere near a hundred thousand dollars let alone one million. And so these stories are important for people's mindset to shift who are in power because they, it doesn't suit them to see that these models work. 
because the status quo is far more comfortable and easy, and it's really important that we bang the drum about this stuff. Thanks very much. So let's let's go to the floor. I'm getting a couple of hand uh, to the throat marks. We'll take a couple of good questions. And one of them is from Emma Kate from Food Connect. I'm going to sound like an entitled, whinging social entrepreneur, but um, <laughs> why are we putting more pressure on the social enterprise sector to prove its value when we should be asking corporates to prove their social license to operate? Thank you, Kate. Would anyone like to respond to that, or should we take it as a comment? Hannah? <laughs> I'm just going to say plus one. Yes, let's make that happen. Guild, guild and chain are powerful motivators. <laughs> Thank you, okay. There's another question over here. Hi guys. Um, when I was listening to Support the Survivor, I have been lucky enough to start working with Tony through Reverse Waste, and we are a recycling company, and I just wanted to go with MK's comment there about well, what's our social license? We operate, we're a business, we make money. Um, and one of the things that we're currently trying to do is we already work with Tony as a social enterprise, and I went on to visit the other week. One of the comments he said to me was, "Nicole, we work differently. Um, don't you know? You need to understand how we work in order to work well together." And that's something I'm really taking on board in my new role. And I think business does need to learn that, yeah, social enterprises have different um, priorities, and the better we can work with Tony, and the better we can work with other social enterprises that we're starting to work with, the better it is us. So I don't think it's necessarily, like my bottom line, you know, obviously that's important for me to look at, to report to, <laughs> um, otherwise I don't have a job. But um, that is not the only thing that I'm now looking at because I'm looking at, well, if I do this a little bit differently and if I get the truck to Tony on time, it's going to make him happy and it's going to make us happy and um, there's more opportunities to then bring in more people. So I, I like that. I think we do have to prove our social license to the people that we work with and be a responsible partner. And I'd like to see more questions being asked for businesses. How are you being a responsible partner? You know, we're not just here to give you, you know, some money and hopefully, you know, you'll get some jobs out of that as a social enterprise. I think there's more that we can add and being able to value that is important. Thank you, Nicole. So we've got one more question before the morning tea break. So anyone, would anyone like to ask a question? Um, how do you get um, layers of government on board to see the same thing? Because we're in a regional community in Redlands and we're banging the drum and we just keep getting shot down with the, oh, that system doesn't allow that to happen. And that being caught up with red tape, it just drives our community into despair and, and then it's harder to generate even the power in our community. If we can't get those layers of government on board to support us, we just drown in that red tape, can't make it happen, it's all too hard basket. Bureaucracy, big problem, uh, red tape. I'm sorry to hear that you keep getting shut down, but I'd say keep trying. Um, at the moment, there's a shift um, from governments actually, well, I won't say governments, I'm not going to state the whole government, but I, I know from the councils, from the regional level, to participate with people in the community and support people in the community um, on projects that are innovative or supporting entrepreneurship and um, enterprise and so forth. So that needs to be socialised a bit more in the councils and that's what they're actually doing at this point. So it is starting 
to look like a less um, hierarchical conversation and more a more collaborative uh, approach where the government are listening to the community on what they can do to move forward. So that's probably my comments on that. There's one particular government department, state government department here in Queensland that have um, continuously supported our social enterprises in Spain since 1999. It's been about key champions within the department who understand social enterprises and even though we've had some turnover, they've actually educated their teams around the value that we bring. And um, so that's how we've been able to maintain some significant contracts with the council, I was the state government and fencing. Um, so yeah, I think it's important that you find some, some advocates within the system. My thing is always starting with the smallest possible intervention that I can or the enterprise that I want to start, get it going, and then make it look so great that they look bad not helping you. You know, once you have enough people backing you, they can't not try to change it, especially if it makes them look stupid and you tweet about it. Like, oh. I, I think that as well, the, the make them look stupid kind of thing. But I do think there's one other thing that we don't do very well as a sector, and that is um, a lot of people have come into the social enterprise space because they, keep their, they, they care deeply about an issue and they want to devote their lives to solving a particular issue. So they come at it from a very, very strong, you know, biggest heart in the world kind of perspective. And the issue of having a big heart is you can be uh, accused of being a bleeding heart. And uh, people in business and, and often in government who need to deal in a rational, methodical, analytic world, often, even if intuitively they want to help you, there's nothing that they can help you with because you aren't talking their language, nor are you giving them the tools that is going to help them shop it into their next level. And the biggest thing I've had to learn as a social entrepreneur, one of those bleeding hearts, is to be uh, bilingual. And, and that means to be, uh, I feel like my native tongue is community, but my non-native tongue is business. And I've had to learn a level of literacy in business that allows me to have a respectful conversation when I can control my anger um, with, with people um, that is talking their language. And when I've been able to do that, um, I've got a better result. But even better still, because of my reputation is the bleeding heart, I find people around me who come from a business perspective who advocate into the places where we're wanting to go far more eloquently and easily than I can. And so it's about, really is about getting those four sectors in the room who already get you and then saying, how do we actually have a, a multi-pronged approach here? And um, because people identify with people and it's very easy to let your guard down when you know someone's like you, but you've got your guard up when someone's unlike you. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.